and pencils are on the floor. It's a joyful thing to see the kids come, is it not? Well, as most of you know, last Sunday we finished our exposition of 2 Peter. And uh, we learned in 2 Peter uh, a, a little phrase. You think about 2 Peter, what do you think of? No. What do you, what do you think of in 2 Peter? Know and grow. Well, next week we're going to begin the book of Jonah. And um, this may change, but I do think that in Jonah we are going to address the issue of mercy. And uh, the question we're going to ask in Jonah is, do you love mercy? Because Jonah didn't like mercy, to be honest. He liked it when it came to himself, but he didn't like it when it was extended to others. And and the issue that we will learn in Jonah will be, do you love mercy? Do you have a heart for other people? Do you have a lo- heart for lost people? Those who are straying, who need the grace and kindness of God. Hopefully Jonah will stir us up evangelistically to, to realize God's heart for the lost. Before we get into Jonah, though, I want to spend one week, kind of a, a transition, if you will, addressing the topic of Christian growth. So prevalent in Second Peter. I mean, Second Peter was know and grow, and we saw over and over again how Peter exhorted us to know the truth and then to grow in godliness. Know the know the know the truth and grow in godliness. And in order to to push that, we handed out some plants like this to the congregation. Now, I'm I'm just kind of curious how your your plants are doing. I know some of you, your plants have died. Now, that's not a symbol of your faith, okay? It's not that, so don't be discouraged. It's a symbol of your neglect, okay, is what that is. Um, But these are some plants that we had that we didn't give out. There are are three of them. And if you you didn't get a plant and want to be reminded of 2 Peter, feel free to come up here and just take one. First come, first serve. If you're not fast on your feet, then you're, you're out of luck. Um, but if you would like a plant, in fact, Vaughn says, we don't want to bring these home. So you can put them in your car and maybe protect them a little bit so they don't get toasted on the way out. But this is what we've been looking at. We've been looking at knowing and growing. And uh, this morning, I want to talk about growing one more time. This time from the words of Jesus. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to John 15. We're going to look this morning at the first 11 verses of John 15, and we're going to find the exact same thing that Jesus says, know and grow. He uses different terms, he uses different thoughts a little bit, but still it's fundamentally the same thing. Knowing the truth and growing in godliness. These words in John 15 come in the, the context of the upper room discourse. So the name given to John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 when Jesus was speaking intimately with his disciples shortly before his death. It was there in the upper room, John 13, that Jesus demonstrated true servanthood as he stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples when none of them would wash feet. He said, I am a servant and what I've done to you, you do to others. It was there in John 13 that he instituted the Lord's Supper speaking about how this is my body and this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Think about my sacrifice, which is going to happen just in a a few moments, a few short hours. And in chapter 14 and chapter 16, he talked about the Holy Spirit, seeking to comfort them. They They were distraught. They were troubled. And he spoke to them and told them how the Holy Spirit would come and he would help you and he would guide you. He was the paraclete. He was the encourager, the one come 
alongside of them. And then in chapter 17, all the disciples heard Jesus pray. He prayed to the Father for himself. Then he spent a lengthy time praying for his disciples there among them. And then he prayed for us, for those who would believe in him through them. And we come right here, right into the middle of the upper room discourse here in John 15, 1 through 11. Now, in many ways, these words are like the words of Peter. They are dying words. If you remember the words of 2 Peter, they were written um, as the last things, perhaps, that Peter wrote. He knew that his departure was near, that the end of his life was coming. And so also in John 15, these are the last words that Jesus would speak. And he knew that, that after he spoke these words, shortly thereafter, Jesus would betray him. And of course, you know what took place after that. He was found guilty by the Sanhedrin, crucified upon a cross. But being his last words, as we did with Peter, so also with Jesus, they, they caused us to, to heighten our awareness, to pay special close attention to them. Also, Second Peter and John 15 are written to loved people. You remember in Second Peter how often Peter said, Beloved, 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 especially towards the end. And so likewise here in John, these are his friends. These are his closest friends that he was speaking to. In fact, you can see over in verse 14, he says, You are my friends. You disciples here are my closest companions. Furthermore, Second Peter and John 15 deal with the importance of Christian growth. Peter's epistle was all about growing in Christ. And Jesus speaks here about growing as well, describing the process similar to fruit being grown on a vine. So let's just read John 15, 1-11. Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There are two abundant themes in these, um, two dominant themes that come about in John 15, 1 through 11. The first one is this aspect of abiding in Christ. The second theme is this about bearing fruit. Abiding in Christ, bearing fruit. Abiding in Christ comes up ten times in these 11 verses. If you do the math, ten times in 11 verses, almost every verse, he's pounding the same thing. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. For instance, here are a few. Uh, verse 4. Abide in me. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me. Verse 7. If you abide in me. So instantly it causes us to ask the question, what does it mean to abide in him? 
What does it mean to abide in me? It means to, that we, we trust Christ. It means that we rest in Him. It means that we commune with Him. It means that we have a, a life of constant dependence upon Him. We seek Him. We learn of Him. We, we love Him and obey Him. We know Him. That's what it means to abide. And such abiding, such remaining, I'll say, is the key to our spiritual growth. Abiding in Christ is the key to our spiritual growth. You say, hey, I want to grow as a Christian. I say this, along with Jesus, then abide in Christ. That's how you grow. In fact, we see that. It's the second dominant theme, Christian growth. Now, Jesus doesn't use the word growth, but He uses the word fruit. Six times in this passage, He used it explicitly, and several other times He refers to it, but doesn't actually use the word. Using this term, Jesus describing the process by which we grow in Him. Like, for instance, you can look there at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it might bear more fruit. And you can see the connection in verse 4 between bearing fruit and abiding. This is knowing and growing. Abiding and then growing. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine so neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in Me. And there you see, you see knowing and abiding, and then you see from that, you see growing as a result of it. Now as I sought to outline these 11 verses, I found it difficult. Because these two concepts of abiding in Christ and, and bearing much fruit, they're, they're like so interweaved, inter- interwoven. And in fact, Jesus doesn't speak very much about abiding in Him without talking about bearing much fruit. And he doesn't talk much about bearing much fruit apart from abiding in Him. And so, rather than trying to take those things up topically and separate them, I just want to leave them spaghettied together, if that's a verb. Is that a verb? Spaghettied together. We're going to do that. So we don't have an outline this morning. I'm just going to walk these verses. For those of you who are Outline thinkers like my wife, I apologize today, but it's always good to change. Okay? Today we're just going to walk through these verses, just a, in some sense sort of a, a running commentary, but just letting the flow of Jesus' thought prompt our hearts as we think about this matter of Christian growth. Now this point will be good. We've talked about abiding. Let's talk about fruit. What is fruit? Oftentimes when people hear that word, instantly they think of evangelism and converts, right? What's the fruit of your life? Well, I've got these five converts over here that I have produced in my life. And there's, there's truth to that. That is fruit. But I, I think here that what Jesus is talking about fruit is far bigger than that. Uh, I don't think it's just converts that he's talking about. Uh, I think what Jesus is talking about here is the fruit that is the manifestation of of the life of Jesus within us. Fruit is the manifestation of the life of Jesus within us. I mean, think about the picture that Jesus gives. He gives this picture of a, of a, of a branch which is connected to the vine. And, and, and the branch bears fruit as it's connected to the vine, and the life of the vine goes through the branch to produce fruit. And I think that that's the definition of fruit that we ought to have. That life of Christ, the manifestation of life in Christ in us, because I think that's how Jesus uses the term right here. Uh, I think typical examples of this might be love. To see the love of Christ come through us and to others. 
It's, it's not our love. It's the love of Christ working through us. Um, obedience to the commands. Christ, it's, 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 it's our love towards Him, but He's stirring our hearts to desire to want to obey Him. We obey Him. Or joy. That, that as God stirs in our hearts and we abide in Him, there's a joy that flows out of us. Those are, those are fruit. Uh, think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? So these things are exhibited in our life. As, as we show a bit more kindness to others and goodness to others, as, as, as we're relying upon Christ and Christ produces us, that in us, that is fruit that He's talking about today. It's the fruit the Lord wants to see in our lives. He does it through Jesus. In fact, that's what we see with His imagery. Right? Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am. Yeah, we need to stop there. I am. These are two significant words in the Gospel of John. Had we been expositing through here, we would have seen that six times before, Jesus said, I am, and then gives an illustration. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now He comes and He says, I am the true vine. These are pictures of who Jesus is. He's the bread of life from which all who eat will live forever. He is the light of the world by which those who follow Him will walk in the true light. He is the door through which those who walk will be saved. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and knows his sheep. He's the resurrection and the life that he who believes in him will never perish. And now we see that Jesus is the true vine through which those who abide in him will bear much fruit. And you can even see one, verse 1, continuing on, I'm the true vine. There's the picture. Jesus pictures himself as a grapevine. Alive, and vibrant, and growing. And he identifies his father. He says, my father is the vine dresser. That is one who cares for the vineyard. Down in verse 15, we see the picture completed where Jesus said, I'm the vine. He repeats that. And he says, you are the branches. And as branches, we receive life from the root, life from the vine, and bear fruit from that. And all of our lives are under the constant care of God the Father, the vine dresser, who cares for His vine. He cares for His vineyard. And at this point, we really need to say this is a picture. It's like all of the other I Am statements. It's a picture. It illustrates the truth, but don't push it too far. I Am the bread of life. It just means that just as we eat of daily food to sustain us, so also we need to eat of spiritual food, which is Christ, to sustain us. Jesus said, I am the door. It's not a hard knocking door. So don't look for significance in handles and hinges. Just realize that He's the one through which we enter the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Don't, don't go looking for the meaning of wheat or leaven as if you want to press the symbolism too far. Just realize it's teaching us the truth. And the simple truth it's teaching us today is that we, as we are connected with the vine, we grow. But don't push it too far. It's not that Jesus is green and needs sunlight to grow. No. We are simply His branches. It doesn't mean that He's dependent upon us for Him to grow, as normal branches are. 
to realize it's a picture of growth. It's a picture of us abiding Him and growing. The skill of Bible interpretation is, know, is to know how far to press the analogy and when to stop. And there are many who have pushed the analogy here in chapter 15 and have run into problems theologically because of it. We'll see in verse 2. But Jesus said here, I am the vine. That is, He's the source of all spiritual life. He's the source of all spiritual growth. My Father is the vine dresser. He cares for us. Uh, a vineyard without a, a vine dresser is a mess. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Maybe you remember the scene in uh, Prince Caspian when the Pevensey children are, are caught up, brought back into Narnia, and they find themselves in Care Paravel, but they didn't recognize Care Paravel because it was all broken down, and, and that which used to be a big hall was all run over with um, weeds and thorns and, and then trees just kind of growing over here, and they had to walk all over everything. Well, that's a picture of a vine without a vine dresser. How important it is that the Father will, will prune the branches and pull the weeds. And that's what He does in our life. In fact, that's what verse 2 speaks about. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And here in verse 2, we see the importance of producing fruit in our lives. I mean, you think it's important to know and grow, Second Peter? If you just think it's important to know without growing, then you're the branch that's producing no fruit and your future is not good. It says right here, you'll be taken away. Now some think that this means that we can lose our salvation. There's no fruit in our lives, we're taken out of the vine. Now, I think that the, the key to that is don't press the analogy too far. You see from other portions of Scripture that we are secure in the love of God. However, there are those who fall away. We can't lose our salvation, but the Bible speaks clearly of those who fall away. In fact, even when Jesus was speaking this, He was dealing with one who was about to fall away. What was His name again? Judas. He's about to fall away. In fact, even Judas was there at the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 13. And then Jesus identified him as the one who would betray him, even after Jesus washed his feet. This is the one who betrayed me. And then he left to betray Jesus. And you see that in chapter 13. Uh, where is it? I think it's uh, verse 30. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, for it was night. And Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe. And Judas, yes, was, was in Jesus in the sense that he was in the group of Jesus, but he, he never trusted Him. He was in it for, the, for Himself, not for the glory of God. And Jesus fell away in the sense that He abandoned Jesus and betrayed Him. As a result, God the Father, doing His duties as a vine dresser, took Him away, according to the first half of verse 2. In the study of Second Peter, we saw how there were false teachers who fell away, came into the church, leading people, teaching about Jesus, knowing much about Jesus. But later, they turned to their former lusts. Did they fall away? Absolutely, they fell away. Did they lose their salvation? No, they never had a faith. But here, Jesus speaks about being taken out of the vine. There are those who appear to be in Christ and are so... <laughs> those who appear to be in Christ, but Christ takes them away. So there's no doubt who they are. Notice... Who is removed from the vine? It's those who have no fruit. 
And I'm telling you, such a fate is tragic. It ought to stir you and alarm you to say, wow, if, if I'll be taken out if I don't have fruit, what should I seek? What should I look for in my own life? What should you look for? Fruit. That's how God distinguishes who's taken out. In fact, the burden of John recording these words was that you might have fruit. I think about the end of, of John. John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes why he wrote what he wrote. Why he included of all the words that he could have included. Why he included of all the signs he could have included. Why did he include these? And John said that these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Right? In other words, I've written these things so you might see Jesus in all His glory, in all His splendor, in all His beauty, in all His attractiveness, that you might believe that He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that He is the Christ. And then in the process, in believing in Him, you might have eternal life. That's why he wrote. And, and John's burden of the, of the Gospel that he wrote is so that we might hear these things and hear, if I'm not bearing fruit, I might be cast away. I need to... See to it that I bear fruit. So what about those who have fruit in their lives? I, I trust you to think about your life. I hope that most of you, hope that, I hope that all of you say, yeah, I can see some fruit in my life. I see the, for the Spirit working in there because I, I believe. It's probably the majority of us here today. If you have fruit in your lives, what's going to happen to you? Well, the last half of verse 2 talks about that. Jesus says, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You think about that. And you, it might be surprising to you. It might be shocking to you. <laughs> you might be walking along. You'd think that if you're producing fruit in your life, that God would be satisfied with your life. I mean, look, God, I'm showing love. I'm, I'm being patient with other people. I'm sharing the Gospel. I'm leading my family well. Look, aren't you happy with me? Aren't you satisfied with me? I'm, I'm bearing forth this fruit. And you know what God says? <laughs> I'm not satisfied. I'm going to lop this off, and I'm going to lop this off, and I'm going to lop this off in your life so that you bear more fruit. So that you increase in that is what he's saying. See, the vine dresser isn't content to see fruit. The, fine, the vine dresser wants to see abundant fruit. And to do so, the vine dresser will prune his vines. Now, I don't know much about pruning produce, but I have a friend who does, uh, Tim Finley. I'm not sure how many of you know him. He doesn't come to our church, but he attends the, the small group up there at the, the Reeds home. And um, he grew up on an apple orchard. So I called him this week and I said, Tim, I got John 15. I don't know anything. I know a little bit about pruning, but can you, can you teach me about pruning? Now, he, he pruned apple trees, a little bit different than the vine, but listen, the, the analogy comes together, I'm sure. So he told me all about the apple orchard that his father owned and, and operated. He said that they, they go out during the winter months when the tree's a bit dormant, so they don't have to deal with all the sap and things can be lopped off a lot easier. He said that the, the process of choosing which branches to to prune varies on a lot of circumstances. First of all, what they used to do is they used to plant seedlings. Just basically a, a, a branch in the ground um, was, um, what am I looking for? Merged to, our, to a root system and so it could grow it was straight up. And as those branches grew, first of all, he said, we'd cut off every single one of those branches because it's small. And we don't want it growing off this way. We want it growing straight up. And then the second year, they'd lop off just a few. Just keep going straight. And the third, maybe just a little bit more. By the fourth year, though, 
It was getting pretty tall. It was growing pretty strong. It was growing pretty strong to make sure the base of the tree was right there growing strong and tall. And then once the tree was large enough, he said they were looking, with apple trees, looking for the four major arteries. One going out this way, this way, this way, this way, so as to balance the tree perfectly, so as to you know, make the, the massive, whatever, make each of these limbs bear forth much. So they decided, so they looked at this, this tree that was blossoming, okay, which branch can be a major artery? And you got four of the major arteries. And they cut everything away except for the major arteries that were going off. And as the tree grew, these four major arteries going, um, then they would make other decisions about what to cut off. So, so suppose they, they approach a bigger tree that they're going to prune, and they prune each tree every year, and they, they approach this bigger tree, and it's got these four arteries growing out, and so they say, okay, well, what do we need to prune? For? Well, first we need to prune whatever's dead. Whatever's dead, we're going to lop that off for sure, because the tree will always try to revive dead branches. So life's going through that. We don't want the tree to waste energy trying to revive dead branches, so he cut those off. And then he looked for the branches that were useless. Like, for instance, if a branch is going straight up, totally useless is what he said. Like, I didn't know this, but the water, he's got to fight against gravity, and so the fruit at the end of this branch isn't going to get as much water because it's fighting against gravity. And plus, you've got this big ripe apple here, what's going to happen to the branch? It's going to break off. Totally useless. So they, they cut off any useless branch that they find. And then after they cut off the dead and useless branches, they cut off any other branch that impedes the growth of the four major arteries. And there are times when perfectly good branches are cut off the tree because they grow in the wrong place. Now one of the things Tim stressed with me about apple trees is how much of the tree is actually cut off. He says, you, you go through there in the wintertime. You think of the wintertime, there's no leaves or anything. He said, you look down the road, you can barely see through that thing. But after we go through and prune all these, these branches off of there, you say, are there any trees left here? That's the perspective of how much they prune off. But the pruning process is good for growth. He, he told me one time there was this, this section of the, 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 um, the apple orchard where the, um, the apples off those trees one year were about the size of golf balls. Totally useless. And so they went through then that winter and just hacked it to pieces. And the next year, he said, he and his family were totally shocked at how big and how juicy and how fruitful were the apples from that bad portion of the orchard simply because they... They did a good job of pruning. Really cut it down. Now, Jesus isn't speaking about pruning apples. He's talking about pruning a vine, pruning grapevines. And not everything is the same, but, but I think the principles are probably there. If I know somebody who grew vines, and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd call them. Um, but I don't. But, but think about it. You guys know enough about pruning. I remember a couple years ago, my, we had some bushes out in the front of our yard, and someone said, yeah, just hack them down. Just cut them off. And so Yvonne did that, and they... They were, you know, about two inches tall. <laughs> like, there's nothing there. And yet, cutting them down so much, what happened then the next year? They grew back stronger than ever. It's so counterproductive, and yet that's what God does. God will prune us so that we bear much fruit. So think about the application of this. God brings troubles and trials and stresses in our lives to cut off the dead portions, to cut off the useless portions of our life, to cut off the things we're doing good, but God wants us to take away the good to get the best. So 
He takes away the good to get the best so that we would have more fruit in our lives. And it may be that God has struck you down this year because He's just pruning you so as to make you abound in more and more fruit than you've ever had before in your life. Think about Moses was 40 years in exile. God was pruning him at that time. Joseph was a decade, more than a decade in prison. God was pruning him at that time. Paul was off in Arabia for 14 years. God was pruning him at that time. But not all pruning takes so long. Peter was denied Christ three times, only to be restored just a few days later. So church family, listen, welcome the day that God brings pain into your life. Know that He's doing it, that you might increase in fruit bearing. That's the premise of suffer now, glory later. 1 Peter. We can rejoice in the sufferings today because we know of the glories that are going to follow tomorrow. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5.3, we exult in our tribulations. Why? Because tribulations produce fruit in our lives. Namely, perseverance, proven character, and hope. We should consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that trials produce endurance, which leads to refining of our character. So think about this. If you're walking with the Lord, submitting to Him, and some trial comes into your life, you need to realize that it may not be God's discipline upon your life. It may be God's pruning of your life so that He might produce more fruit in you. Now, it may be discipline. If you've been walking down a wrong path, neglecting Him, living in sin, it may be that God is bringing trials in your life to bring them back to you, according to Hebrews chapter 12. But it may just be God's pruning work in your winter season of life so that you produce more fruit later. It may be that way. A good illustration of that is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul tells of how he was afflicted And in his affliction, God comforted him. And then what Paul said is that, hey, I realize that that yes, I've been afflicted, but God has comforted me, so now I can comfort you with the same comfort with which God has comforted me by just increasing the fruit in his life that he might be one to be able to really go out and comfort others in their time of affliction and distress. The obvious question at this point is God producing fruit in your life. Are there things in your life that you can only explain by saying, God's at work in me. That's all I can say. God is working in me. You see my patience with my children? All I can say is that God is working in me. You see this happiness, which I shouldn't have because things are going bad? (laughs) All I can say is that God is working in me to give me a greater hope than what is humanly explicable. Do you know of God's pruning work in your life? It may be that you say, hey, life's been totally easy for me. Things are going on just fine. No problems for me. It's like, is God pruning your life? No, my fruit's good enough. I don't need pruning. It's like, no. If your fruit's good enough, God's going to prune you so you have great fruit. That's what he's going to do. That's great fruit, not grape fruit, right? (laughs) If you don't see the refining work of God, you may question, well, is God in my life or not? Is he there? I think that's the reason for verse 3. He's giving assurance to his disciples. Maybe we're discouraged by seeing maybe we don't have enough fruit in our life. 
But he said in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus here, I think, is saying that you all are true branches. <laughs> Judas has left us. It's just left 11. You all are clean because of the word that was spoken to you. They've been cleansed of their sins because they've heard the words of Jesus, believed in the words of Jesus. They have an eternal life to look forward to. I think these cleansing words here in verse 3 are the cleansing of the Gospel. See, if you're going to bear much fruit, you need to first be cleansed. First of all, you need to be grafted into the vine of Jesus by faith in Him. If you don't see fruit in your life, it may be that you've never been cleansed from your life. So I exhort this morning, you this morning to believe upon Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Maybe especially some of you kids. Believe in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Be clean through His words. And in fact, if you trace through the Gospel of John, you see Jesus often beckoning people to believe in Him and abide in Him. And He said it in various different ways, lots of different forms, but He said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And Steffi knows that verse, right? Yes, you know that verse, Steffi? Great. Great. Jesus spoke to the woman of the well. He says, whoever drinks of that water of life, they'll thirst again. But you drink from the water that I give you and you will never thirst. The well I give will spring up in him and become in him a well of water spring up to eternal life. He invited the woman at the well to drink of him. When he put forth this illustration about the bread of life, he said, I am the bread of God which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right? Eat this bread. Eat of me. And constantly he's telling people, Listen to my words, believe them, trust them, take of me, abide in me, remain in me. And as they did, they were cleansed. And time after time, as they did that, they experienced a cleansed life. But a cleansed life is not without problems. In fact, it's when things are going well that you may be pruned. And in that, we ought to rejoice. See, God cuts us down even when things are going well, even when things are blossoming. So we might produce more growth. Think about when, when God struck Paul down, the thorn in the flesh. He said, God, remove it from me. Three times he asked. And God says, no, I'm not going to remove it from you because strength is perfected in weakness. I want to make you weak so that I can be strong through you. Paul said, all right. All right. Let me have that. You want to see fruit in your life? Say, abide in Jesus. And this is what verse 4 speaks about here. Abide in Jesus. Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Let me say it simply and as plainly as I can. Apart from Jesus, we are not able to bear fruit. Because really by definition, that's what fruit is. Fruit is the life of Christ working through the vine into the branch out from us. So by definition, apart from Jesus, you cannot bear fruit. You can try. You can stick a branch in the ground. But without it's not going to grow. I guarantee you, it's going to wilt and die. It's just not going to grow. And so it is with us. Unless we're connected with Jesus, we aren't going to grow. It won't bear fruit. You can't grow to be like Jesus if you're not abiding in Jesus. I mean, you can't become a master musician without practicing your instrument. You can't become a great basketball player without going into the gym. You can't become a master chef without cooking. 
And so likewise, you can't bear much fruit in your spiritual life without spending time with Jesus. (laughs) Without abiding in Him. Here's the amazing thing though. People try to do this all the time. That's the amazing thing. They have no communion with Jesus. Their time in the Word is nothing. Okay, If you want to have time in the Word, just an aside, name your bed the Word. And then when someone says, how are you doing? Say, oh, good. I've been spending a lot of time in the Word. It's <laughs> <That's> a joke. <laughs> but there are people who spend no time in the Word. Who spend zero time praying. Who spend time thinking about earthly matters rather than speaking about Him. Thinking about Him. They spend no, no time or efforts pursuing other avenues of growth. Book reading or, or sermon listening or, or private worship or Christian fellowship or serving others. Right? They spend none of this time and yet they expect they're going to grow. They come to church on Sunday morning thinking a few hours a week, this is, this is good, 10 to 11.30, I stay around until noon. And it's two hours and leave and they think that they will grow. A few hours a week, it's going to sustain them. But they go home, their Bible's neglected, it's put there on their nightstand. Christian fellowship is ignored. Communion with the Lord is non-existent and they think, hey, I'm going to grow, I'm going to come. Show up at church, look at me. Would you ever try that with food? Would you ever say, ah, just give me, let me gorge for two hours and that'll sustain me this week? D.L. Moody said it well. A man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain his life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. Daily intake. That's what it means to abide. Abide is connected. It's not like the branch says, okay, I've got my few hours of connecting here. Now I can go out and do this. Oh, uh, you know, let me come back. No, it's, it's always, I mean, we're talking 24-7, 365, and always constant connection of the branch to the vine. And so likewise, that's what we need to be Jesus. Constantly in communication, constantly in prayer, constantly thinking of His Word, constantly abiding in Him. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we do well to, to pray this. Give us this day our needed grace. Give me the grace I need today. Give me the grace. Help me, God. Help me. So it means to abide. Sadly, people try to live lives like spiritual camels. They drink up every now and then, expect to have enough water in the backs of them to keep them for a week without drinking. You can't live like that. You can't flourish like that. Jesus said, you need to abide in me. And so important is this thought that Jesus repeats the concept here in verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Whenever something's repeated in Scripture, it means it's important. Look for those things that are often spoken about and say, God speaks about them often because it's probably the things we need to remember most. And when Jesus here repeats verse 4 and verse 5 practically saying the same thing, we need to realize it's important. You want to bear fruit? Then abide in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Take to heart what Jesus said in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch apart from the vine cannot do anything. 
to bear fruit, you need to be connected and you need to be a conduit of the life of Jesus through us. We don't create our own fruit. On the contrary, it's God who works in us to create the fruit. We're the branches. We get our life from the vine. The vine is the source. The vine is our strength. Without the vine, we are nothing. A branch caught up from the, cut off of the vine will perish. I mean, you just go and try it sometime. In fact, I've, I've seen this before. I've cut down enough trees in my lifetime to see this. Right? You, you cut down this tree and it all falls down and then you maybe get partially into, into, into cutting it up for your firewood or whatever you're going to do. And they've got some of these big branches. They kind of sit there and they wait around until you can throw them out in the fire. And what happens to the leaves? They, they, just, they just wither right up because they don't have the nourishment from the tree coming up into the branches, into the leaves to help them. In fact, I remember one particular occasion um, had a tree in our backyard, a big birch tree. It's probably the circumference of this thing was about this big. And um, so we, we cut it down. And, and now they learned about trees this week is probably, probably significant in the summertime when things were growing and flourishing. But we cut it down and we had the stump. The stump was probably about, about this high off the ground. It didn't have time to cut it all the way down. But it had this high off the ground. The tree went down, kind of cleaned it up like that. And uh, I noticed instantly that this... this, this um, this stump here it was wet. And I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of strange. And, and even it went back for the next couple days. This, this, um, this stump that we'd cut was sopping wet all the time. You know what that was? What is it? It's the wet water. It's the sap that's coming up through there saying, hey, I've got this tree up there and I need to feed this tree. I mean, this is a big tree, so I need to feed this. And uh, all the water that was headed for the branch was just kind of sitting there on the stump. wasn't going anyplace because the branch wasn't there anymore. The, the tree was on the ground all cut up in little pieces because we chainsawed it to death. <laughs> but I thought, what a great picture that is of our Heavenly Father. Always providing, always providing, always providing. There's life right there. What do we need to do? We just need to sit on that trunk and get that sap into our bodies and into our minds. We need to stay connected to the vine. And if we separate ourselves from the life of the trunk, you know, God is still there giving the sap. We should make sure we stay connected. God is there providing everything we need, but without the close connection, there's no source of life. There's no life there. If we drift away from the source of our lives, we won't receive the nutrients, we won't bear fruit, if today finds you drifting, come back to the stump. The water is being flow, flowing from that. Connect yourself again to the vine. Be there. Bear fruit. But don't think you can do it on your own. You can't. You can't bear fruit on your own. Read my lips. You can't do it on your own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Believe that. Listen, when you believe that, what are you going to do? <laughs> if I can't do it on myself, what can I do? I could just call out to God to help me and, and to abide. I mean, that's it. Just call out, I need help, God. Be with me. Help me. Grow me. And it's just, just cries for help. In our prayer time this morning, Frank Yonke led us in a great time talking about Peter when he was sinking. Jesus sinking on the water and Peter's sinking. What's he saying? He's saying, apart from Jesus, I'm drowning. So what's he saying? Help! Help! I need help. And if, if you can't do anything apart from God, what are you going to do? You've got to just pray, pray constantly. God, help, help, help. Work in me. Work in me so as to show yourself.
you want to try on your own, well, verse 6 is for you. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and, and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. It's a repetition of verse 2. And when something's repeated, it's important. Same type of thought here, right? In this case, Jesus speaks about what happens to those branches that are taken away. They get burned. They get burned up. And this, again, you press this analogy too far and uh, it doesn't, doesn't quite work because God allows us to continue to grow. He doesn't burn us instantly when we drift away from Christ. Praise the Lord. But we get burned up. I, I talked to my friend about uh, pruning apple trees. Tim Finley said that they had this, he called it the valley. And uh, it was this big dip in the ground. And he, he described it to me, I've, I've never seen it, never was there, but he described it to me as about six houses big. So you think about six houses kind of dumped in there, the kind of volume that he's talking about. And that what they would do is they'd take these branches off of the trees. You know, they, they trim them, put them in the rows, and they just had massive uh, tonnage of, of these trees that they would put there in this valley. And when the valley was all filled up, they'd burn it. But so great was the fire that before they burned the valley, they would call the fire department and say, um, we're about to burn the valley, and I just want to let you know so that you see that. And he said the fire department would come out and watch the burn. And they would see this just huge smoke and burning of all these trees and branches that were dried up as the, the valley is set on fire. And soon the fire department says, okay, everything's under control, let's go home, guys. But such is the burning and such is the fate of those who don't bear fruit. And I'm just telling you, you don't want to go that way. You don't want to go that way. Instead, you want to go the way of verse 7. Jesus talks about what abiding looks like. Okay? In verse 7 and through 11, we're going to see more practically what, what abiding looks like. We see here in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We see here kind of a give and take relationship there. We, we see us abiding in Christ and we see His Word abiding in us. And we see us asking of Him and we see Him granting the request of our prayer. It's a, it's a give and take. It's a, it's a synergism here. It's a, it's a living, vital relationship back and forth. So I just ask you, let's talk about this first one of the Word. Are the words of Jesus abiding in you? And there's no other way to have the words of Jesus abide in us apart from Bible intake. It can take lots of different forms. It can take reading. It can take listening to the Bible on MP3 player. It can be reading your Bible in the morning. It can be memorizing a particular passage of Scripture. It keeps on your mind. It can be studying something. It can be through listening sermons or reading some kind of Christian book. These are ways that which, which Christ's Word can get in you. And if the Bible sits there on your bedside table each week, the words, okay, they're not, they're printed words, okay? They're not like radio signal words that somehow they're going to jump up off the page and get into your mind apart from you opening the book and reading it. That's just how, how it works. But not only does it have to be in you, talking about having a words abide in you, it begins with intake, but it goes beyond that. Even Jesus speaks here about the words abiding in us. And the, and the view is that the words come and, and take residence in our hearts. 
is they come in and they, they dwell and we, we think upon the words of Jesus. And we meditate upon them. And then we come to trust upon them and we come to rest in them. And those words transform us. Like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. So we get that milk in us so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 1 Peter 2.2 It's that Word is in us. It's one of the importance of memorizing. It's the importance of meditating. It's the importance of thinking about it. You know, I have memorized Jonah. I'll recite it for you next week. And it's just been a, a joy in my heart to think about the mercy of God and to marvel that Jonah did not like the mercy of God and it has come back to me. I've talked to Yvonne about ways in which I have not liked the mercy of God. But this is there. I mean, I go over it every morning. I went over it this morning in the shower just thinking about how the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And God sent Jonah to this pagan city. And just, just I think about that. It stirs in my heart. And so likewise, we need to let the words meditate upon us come upon us and meditate on them. And those, by the way, it's the Word of Christ dwells in us that fuels our prayers. You cannot be mighty in prayer without being mighty in the Word first. That's how it works. It's because as God's Word is upon us and as we meditate and as we think about it, then it will naturally come back with, with questions to the Lord, with help from the Lord as we see Bible things or Bible truths. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. Right? We're, we're just seeking to say, hey God, I need to help. I need your help in keeping pure this way. RSSR and I have been memorizing Romans 12.3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. God, help me not to think of myself more highly than my eyes. If the Word dwells in you, those things just naturally spring up to the Lord in prayer. And the great promise here is that whatever you ask, it will be done for you. As the Word is in us, as God's instructing us, and we cry for help, God, to help us, those requests will be granted. And so I just ask you, are you praying? Do you know anything about that life of daily communion with the Lord? Are you constantly offering up to Him prayers? Is it the Word that's dwelt on you, that, that's abiding in you, that's going up to the Lord? Are you seeing His answers to prayer? Are you seeing God working in your life? That's what abiding in Jesus means. That's what communion with Him means. Are you helping others around you? You're making it hard on them. Fathers, I think about you, you all particularly. You all are responsible as heads of your home. Are you helping your wife to cultivate these habits? The things you talk about, the things you say, the things you prioritize, time to allow her a place where she can abide with the Lord. Are you helping your children cultivate these things in their lives? Are you modeling a life before them? I can't tell you the power of, um, of a life of godliness modeled in a family. Frank Yonke, you can give testimony of that, right? The life of your father. I've heard you say many times about just, he would gather you up, he would bring you together to read, and you always knew him as a man of word and prayer. And, and man, you want to impact your children? Be a, be a model of a man who follows through with verse 7, abiding in Christ and having His words abide in us and constantly asking those things and seeing requests made and making the Lord an issue in your home. Modeling it before them, but not only just modeling them, are you teaching your children? Family worship is a great thing. I encourage all of you, 
husbands, fathers, just say, you know, we're going to do that as a, as a home. And just gather your ba- family for, for Bible intake and prayer. Let's just read the Bible together. Let's just pray together. In the busyness of life, it's easy to neglect. We have an aim every, every day to do it. And we probably have family worship three days a week, four days a week. But you can, you can redeem even some smaller times. When you're in the car, maybe just say, hey guys, let's read our Bible right here. Rather than just listen to some radio or sports. Just redeem your time and do that with your family. It's important. It's important for your life. It's important for your family's life. And look what the result of such a life is. Verse 8. <clears throat> My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. I love the motivation. The motivation here is God's glory. God's glory is at stake in these things. See, when you abide in Him, then He abides in you. He's going to produce fruit. And as you produce fruit in your life, what happens? God is greatly glorified. See, it's one thing to come here each Sunday morning and sing praise to God, and that's wonderful, and that's commanded, and God calls for that, but it's another thing to walk about in your week in such a manner that, that God is producing fruit in you so that God is glorified. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds, and what are they going to do? Say, wow, you're such a good person. They might say that. But Jesus said, walk in such a way that people see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Somehow you're walking in such a way, such a life of dependence, as you walk and do good deeds, that people see that it's the fruit of God working in your life. And that's what he's saying here. Do you know that you can be at peace with others in such a way that God is glorified? That's the fruit of the Spirit, is, is peace. And do you know that your acts of kindness, that God works in you, can give glory to God? as other people see it and see that you're not doing that for yourself, but are doing it solely for God's glory? Do you realize that your moral goodness gives glory to God as you turn away from evil and you do good? Because any moral goodness that you have is coming from God. It's not coming from you because we are wicked and depraved and dead in our sins, apart from God working in us. Do you hear your faithfulness to depend upon the Lord even when the pruning comes? Gives great glory to God. Because there's no other explanation for how is it that you're remaining faithful to the Lord? Why don't you be like, like Job's wife? Curse God and die, Job! He says, no. God has given. God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that gave God great glory. Do you know that ever-growing self-control gives glory to God? That, that ever-growing ability to, to, to not eat that cookie or to be diligent in your exercise, or not to lash out your children in anger. That's glorifying to God because God is working a self-control in you. Those sort of things glorify God because they put God on display. And verse 8 says, in doing these things, we so prove that we are His disciples. It's obvious to us. It's obvious to the church. It's obvious to your family. It's obvious to the world. You can't hide a life that abides in Christ. I just think about 1 Peter 3.15. Right? When, when uh, people are suffering unjustly under trials and people ask you and you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you when people ask you. Well, why do people ask? People ask because you are, you are so weird. It doesn't, doesn't compute that you're experiencing suffering and you're rejoicing through it. Tell me, what's up? And you'd say, well, I just give all glory to God because He's working through me. See, that's how it works. 
God's glorified. I'm, I, I've shown myself to be a disciple because I've walked in a way that only God working in me can explain. We've got three more verses, three more words, and then we'll be done. The word for verse 9 is love. It's all about love. It's about divine love. Jesus said, Just as the Father's loved me, and I have loved you, abide in my love. This is the great divine love story. It's perfect love between the Father and the Son. And then it was love expressed by Jesus coming and loving us and dying for us. See, he, didn't, he didn't love us when we were beautiful or attractive. He didn't love us for what we could do for Him. He didn't love us because we loved Him first. No, it's the opposite. He loved us and we loved because He first loved us. No, Christ loved us when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, when we were His enemies, when we ignored Him and had nothing to offer. That was the love of God towards us. And Jesus says, abide in my love. Think about the divine love story. That God loved us to come and die for us. And thinking about that will then cause you desire to abide in Him and abide in His love. I gave a book recently to my wife to try to help her abide and grow in, in Christ. You know, I don't know anything about the book, so it's not like I'm, I'm endorsing it, but I am, I am endorsing it. So, because He loves me, how Christ transforms our daily life, Elise Fitzpatrick. I was just thumbing through this this morning, actually. thought, hey, this would be a good, good thing. Where's the summary of this book? She says, exactly, it's essential for us to think about God's love today because it is only His love that can grant us the joy that will strengthen our hearts, the courage that will embolden us to fight against sin, the assurance that will enable us to open our lives to Him so we might deal powerfully with our unbelief and idolatry. If we're not completely convinced that His love is ours right now, fully and unalterably ours, we'll always hide in the shadows, focus on our performance, fearing the wrath of God. Prayer will be hard because we won't want to approach Him or be transparent before Him. Witnessing will be a chore for who would want to talk to others about a God who's demanding angry or cold. If we don't consciously live in the light of His love, the Gospel will be secondary, virtually meaningless, and Jesus Christ will fade into insignificance. Our faith will become all about us, our performance and how we think we're doing, and our transformation will be hindered. That's what he's saying. He says, abide in my love. Just, just think upon, reflect upon, abide in the love of God. And that will lead us to the second word, verse 10, obedience. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. See, abiding in Christ isn't merely mental. Oh, it is mental. It starts about thinking, dwelling upon the truths of Christ. But there's some actions to it as well. And the actions flow from the heart, right? It's knowing the truth first and then growing in godliness after that. And here in verse 10, Jesus says, abiding leads to obedience. Keeping the commandments. So you say, what's the commandment of Jesus? Well, I think perhaps the best way is to just go over to verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. If you want to keep the commandments of Jesus, be a lover. Be one who loves. Lavish your love upon others. That's what he's talking about here. 
And you do that by keeping the commands of Christ. I mean, Christ always commands us in a way of love. Remember when He said to sum up the whole law? The whole law is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Everything else is commentary. And everything else hangs on those two things. So you want to keep the commands of Christ, right? First and foremost, love God with all your heart. Love others. That's the love of, of God working in us. That's the commandments of Christ. And if you're doing that, you are abiding in His love because you're loving. And look to the example of Christ and how He kept the commands of His Father. Finally, verse 11. The word here is joy. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I think it's a great verse to end this morning because it tells us that abiding in Christ is the path to happiness. I mean, my message today, I trust you see, hasn't come to say, read your Bible! Just pray to the Lord! It's not that. Just do things to please Him! That's not what he said. What did he say? He says, abide in me, and these things then will make you happy. My message today has been this. Do you want to be happy? I mean, who of you wants to be happy? Alette, Alette, come on. Who of you wants to be happy? <laughs> Are you better? Who of you wants to be happy? Yeah, okay, I see. I think, okay, I think I see. Okay, everybody there. Of course we want to be happy. The way to be happy is to abide in Him. Uh, a few months ago, I remember Frank Yonke preached on First uh, Peter. And I remember at the beginning of your message, Frank, you said something like this. Who of you wants to be more holy at the end of 2009 than you were at the beginning of 2009? You remember that question he asked? I remember I was sitting over there when he asked that question, and my heart just resonated with that big time. I said, absolutely I want to be like that, because I know that I'll be more happy the holier I am. The more I see God working in me, the happier I am going to be. So... For your own happiness and for your own sake, know that abiding in Christ is is the best path to happiness. Now, the world is telling us no. The world is telling us other things. Attractions, this, events, spending, big houses, whatever we want, right? You get it, you want it. And the world is saying that's the way to happiness. And Christ says, no, the way to happiness is much easier than that. It's just abiding in me. And then you'll be happy. Do you want to be happy? Follow the counsel of Christ. But here, even how about this? What if I told you today that you could make God really happy? That God could look down upon you and you could put a big smile on His face. Would you want to do that? I think You think so, David? I, I think so. I do. You want the favor of God. You don't want the divine displeasure. You want His favor. And abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit brings much happiness to God. Look at what it says there. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's Christ's joy, happiness, even in us. I think it alludes to God being happy. His joy stands down to us. You know, God has more joy over one sinner who repents over a thousand who need no repentance. He has joy when we follow in Him and follow in His ways. And He commands us to be happy. 
Psalm 100 verse 2, enters gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. There's nothing that would make Christ happier, God happier than us abiding and trusting in him. So I trust in my effort today just to reflect once more upon Christian growth, we'd see the words of Christ and grow in them. After I pray, Andy's going to come and lead us in a song, My Jesus, more love to thee, O Christ. Right? Just there it is. Christ, I want to love you more. I sought my, my praise in earthly things, but now I seek my rest in you. And that's what an appropriate song it is for us, just to pray that we might have more love to Christ, to abide in Him more richly. So let's pray.